Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. This is the final episode of season one. We're going to take off for the rest of the summer and return with season two in September at the Toronto International Film Festival. In the meantime, I hope you'll listen to past episodes you may have missed. They include interviews with filmmaking greats like Jonathan Demme, D.A. Pennebaker, and Chris Hedges, as well as the directors behind some of this year's most talked about documentaries, Making a Murderer, Wiener, and O.J. Made in America. Today, my guest is Barbara Koppel, the two-time Oscar-winning filmmaker of Harlan County, USA, about a coal miner's strike in Kentucky, and American Dream, about a meatpacker's strike in Minnesota. Her other films include Fallen Champ, The Untold Story of Mike Tyson, Wild Man Blues, about Woody Allen, and Shut Up and Sing, about the Dixie Chicks. Her newest film is Miss Sharon Jones, about the soul singer who performs with the Dap Kings, as she battles cancer and makes a comeback. I was honored to host the film's world premiere last year at the Toronto International Film Festival. It played as the opening night of the Doc NYC Festival and is coming to theaters this summer. She joins me at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Program. Barbara Koppel, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I know that your mother passed away not long ago, and, and I believe you were close to her. And I think lots of parents are reluctant to have their kids go into film. And I would think at the time you were doing it, it might have been even more so because there hardly were any women in directing films. So what was your mother's attitude towards you getting into film? Well, I think both my mother and my father, and I had an extraordinary childhood with a tremendous amount of love and respect. And when I was making, for example, Harlan County, USA, I would ship the film back to my father and he would ship more film to me because we really didn't have any funding. And I remember the morning that we got machine gunned with semi-automatic carbines. And I called my parents and said, well, today I got machine gun with semi-automatic carbines. And my mother said, you come right home. I forbid you to be there another minute. And I said, only kidding, mom. And she said, <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, don't ever do that to us again. And so I never showed them an inch of the film until it was uh, shown at the New York Film Festival. But my parents were the most amazing people. What was their background? My father lost his father when he was 13, and he was the oldest. And he went into his own business of textiles. And my mother was a homemaker. You were coming of age in a convulsive time when there was a lot of generational uh, rebellion and, uh, and a generation gap. Was that true in your family? All right. I, I will confess something. My father called me up and he said, because we were all very close, why don't we talk like we used to? And I said, because we don't do the same things. And he said, for example. And I said, well, you don't smoke pot. <laughs> and he said, I'll try it. <laughs> so I went and I found the best stuff I could possibly find. And I brought it up to my mother and father. And my mother, of course, would not smoke any of it. And my father and I started smoking it together. And we were laughing so hard because my mother said, okay, 
who's hungry? What can I bring you? You know, she had (laughs) researched everything about it. So anything really went with my parents. Uh, They wanted to explore. They had an incredible sense of curiosity. And they were, I just can't tell you what wonderful people they were. So what set you out on the path to make films? Well, uh, I went uh, to Medfield State Hospital uh, for a six-month work-study program, and I was studying psychology at the time, and a lot of the people there had had lobotomies, and I knew that if I wrote something about it, nobody would ever read it. So I decided to make a little film about it, and then I knew immediately that that was what I wanted to do. My professor... Dr. Donahue was not happy about this at all. But I just went to New York City. What was his opposition? Uh, that I was taking the easy way out. Mm. <laughs> Little did he know that I wasn't. <laughs> um, Rarely has such a bigger misjudgment ever been made. <laughs> <laughs> really. So then I came to New York um, City and got a job in Cinema Verite. I mean, not a job. I went to class uh, for schooling in Cinema Verite. and There, there was, was actually classes for that. Yeah. I think the, um, the new school or the School of Visual Arts. Um, and there was a woman sitting next to me um, named Angela. And Angela said, I work for these people called the Maisel Brothers, and they're looking for an intern. Would you be interested? And I said, are you kidding? It would be the most wonderful thing ever imaginable. So I never went back to the class. I got um, to work at the Maisels. And so where were the Maisels at at that time in their career? What did you know of them? Uh, I knew that they were just incredible documentary filmmakers. I didn't know, you know, because I worked with them. I was the human tripod for Gimme Shelter. That was my job. Um, Stan Goldstein. What? Al Mazel's cameraman was standing on you to get a shot. Is that it? No. Stan Goldstein, who's a great sound recordist and and had done the whole sound recording for Woodstock, um, 69, had Al around his shoulders. And I had on one side all the magazines for Albert and on the other side all the quarter-inch tapes for David. And my job was to hold Stan Goldstein up so he would keep Al secure. Were you actually at the Altamont concert? No, not Altamont. That was just Madison Square Garden. Ah, I see. They didn't take me to Altamont. I mean, I was a lowly intern. And what did you learn from the Maisels? Well, the Maisels were really very giving with their material and with everything. We would all be part of their meetings every couple of weeks, and they would ask our opinions, and we would give it, and they really heard what we had to say. So I guess a whole sense of self-confidence that what I said meant something. Hmm. Hmm. And Albert and I stayed friends and close, you know, up until the time he died. I spoke at his memorial, and they were just huge influences on my life. I'm curious about the environment. Was it a very male environment? or No, it was a 
the environment it was a very female environment. Hmm. There weren't only Al and David Maisels and Porter Bibb, who had come in for Gimme Shelter. But it was very female at that time. You know, did that help give you encouragement? Because I, I don't think that there would have been that many role models for you to look to at that time. Is uh, Yeah, it gave me incredible encouragement. Everybody helped. Barbara Jarvis, who was um, an assistant editor, editor, would say, okay, at night, I'm going to leave work for you to do. It was working with 16 millimeter film and I'll teach you how to do reconstituting. I'll teach you how, when things are out of sync, how to be able to really look at them. So I would work all day and then I'd stay really late at night and she'd give me responsibilities. And we became such close friends. Her daughter is my goddaughter now. Everybody there was wonderful. Charlotte Zwerin, Susan Steinberg. Um, I just lucked out and was really able to walk into a community that was very supportive. Hmm. Now, what got what attracted you to the coal miners of Kentucky to to make Harlan County? Well, I was listening to NPR, which I listen to always, uh, and there was this guy named Arnold Miller who was wanting to run for president against a guy named W.A. Tony Boyle. And um, he was going to, he was, they were running for president. President of of the United Mine Workers. Yeah. And so I thought, this is really cool. I want to go down there. I want to see that. And I was able to raise, um, to get a loan of $12,000 from a guy named Tom Brandon. And off I went to the coal fields. I did sound. I did sound recording for 17 years. And with a tiny little crew, I think there were two of us or three of us at the beginning. And when we first got down there, you know, of course, nobody trusted us or cared about us. And they thought maybe the company had sent us. Hmm. And then one day... um, We went down to the picket line, and it was raining, and there were no guardrails on the mountain, and our car tipped over. Another car went speeding fast by us, and then our car tipped over. And um, we all crawled out of the car, put our equipment on our backs, and walked all the way to the picket lines. And news travels fast, and so... They knew that we were okay. We were invited to stay in their homes. They protected us. As you described before, there's a lot of harrowing moments of intimidation uh, that took place during during the filmmaking uh, process. Um, what was that like for you? Well, I was really young. <laughs> I was in my early 20s. And when you think you're, you know, when you're in your 20s, you think you're going to live forever. You don't think about anything like that. And we were machine gun with semi-automatic carbines. A miner was killed by a company foreman. Women took over the picket lines and it was frightening. There was one day when everybody had their guns and sometimes when you get scared, you feel all these weird juices in your mouth from fear. Mm. And I went up to one of the head organizers and I said, So you think they're going to shoot at us today? And he said, yep, don't you? And I said, are you scared? And he said, yeah, are you? So it was was a frightening moment. 
But I guess if you don't take risks and you don't do things in your life, you know, maybe you'll always be safe, but you won't learn about people and learn about situations and also put yourself to the test. When did you know that you had a film with Harlan County? Well, after a miner was killed by a company foreman and they signed their contract, but yet there was a major strike going on in Harlan County. So I filmed a bit of that to show that the struggle doesn't end. And then I knew I was finished. Mm -hmm. When you make documentary films, you want to capture a period in time, a moment in time. Uh, and with Harlan County, I mean, I learned what life and death was all about. And it was people, you know, not to be cliche, but people really standing up for what they believed in. 30 years after Harlan County, USA, Barbara was still drawn to people standing up for what they believe in. You can see that in her film, Shut Up and Sing, about the Dixie Chicks. I programmed its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2006, my first year in the job. Barbara directed the film with Cecilia Peck. They followed the Dixie Chicks during a suspenseful year, recording their album, Taking the Long Way. The Dixie Chicks are a trio consisting of lead singer Natalie Maines, along with the sisters Emily Robison and Marty McGuire. They were chart-topping country music stars until a London concert in March 2003, just before the Iraq War. Natalie Maines told the crowd, We're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. Her words spread and sounded unpatriotic to many country music fans. There was a fierce backlash against the band with boycotts and a torrent of hatred directed at Maine's. The film Shut Up and Sing captures the Dixie Chicks in the aftermath as they set out to rebuild their audience. Three years after the controversy, the band was still on edge as they prepared for a new tour. In the film, we see fiddle player Marty McGuire talk about the stress on her friend and bandmate Natalie Maines. I think Natalie still feels pressure about what's happened, even though we say over and over and over again, it was the best thing that, I, I can tell her that and shake her all day long. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's the best thing that ever happened to our career. We'd never change it. You're fine. You didn't do anything. And I just think she's still, she's still, um, feels responsible and if she came to me tomorrow and said yeah I don't want to tour I don't want to record anymore I don't want to do this I care for her I'd say okay I'd give up my career for her to be happy and be at peace I asked Barbara how shut up and sing came to be I really wanted to do it very badly with my partner, uh, Cecilia Peck. 
And we went and we spoke to Simon Renshaw, who was the manager of the Dixie Chicks. And he went, oh, no, they're not very interesting. No, no, no. There's nothing really to film. And we said, really, we really want to film them. We want to film their stories about friendship. We want to film so much about them. This is interesting to me. I always thought that they had come to you and asked you to make the film. No, they didn't. Um, And then they had a website crew who was following them when they said those words, um, we don't want this war, we don't want this violence, and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. The next day, I got a call from Simon, and he said, you're on. Go do it. And that's when how the film started. How long did it take you to figure out, you know, what the film was going to be? The film was going to be that they were blacklisted. They wrote one of the most wonderful albums that had come from that blacklist. And the most beautiful thing was their friendship between each other. And I remember showing it to them. It was in fine cut, and they hadn't seen a frame of it. And they came to my editing room, and they were all sitting there, and the manager was sitting there, and their attorney was sitting there, and you know it was a really small room. And I was over to the side, and I didn't forget that day we sort of plied them with wine before the screening. (laughs) And it was also my birthday on that day. So it really stuck in my mind. And I just watched them watching the film. And each one, you know, one of them had her her arms crossed, another was holding her legs, and Natalie was leaning forward in the chair watching everything. And when Marty in the film said, you know, I will give up my career for you, Natalie, if that's what it means, Natalie sort of had had tears and touched um, Marty's leg and just said, I never knew you felt that way. I never knew you said that. So... It was an extraordinary screening. You know, the only little notes they had were some music notes for us, and it was wonderful. Along the way, I I think that there must be an extra challenge when you're filming celebrities because they're used to having a more mediated life than than other people are. They they have handlers who want to keep cameras out or focus cameras on only certain things. For example, Woody Allen. Or well, for any pack or any of these people. I, I mean, I wonder what your experience is navigating those kinds of subjects. I never had that experience where there were handlers that were keeping me away from them. Uh, Woody Allen was doing a jazz tour, and I came and I met with him, and I said, you know, if you pick me to do this filming. I'm going to want to have total access and do whatever I want to do. And he said, okay. And I'm thinking, does he really know what that means? (laughs) And I knew I only had a short period of time with him, so I had to really get that across to him. He let me do whatever I wanted to do. I also did um, the documentary sound on that film. And so I always 
wire people and, you know, have headphones and hear everything. And I remember, and I even kept them on, on we had a little Gulfstream 4 that took us everywhere. So it was a very easy trip, even though we went to, you know, 23 different cities in Europe. Mm. And I heard Letty, his sister, talking to him. And they said, okay, well, when we get home, we'll go see mom and dad. And I said, well, not without us. And Letty <laughs> said, why would you want to see my parents? I said, just we would love to see your parents. You're not going unless we go. And that was, for me, one of the most beautiful, wonderful, telling scenes about Woody Allen, that when you go home again, you know, you're 12. <laughs> your mother reprimands you. And he asked her, he said, well, what do you think about me having a girlfriend, um, a Korean girlfriend like Suni, and she said, well, I would have wanted you to be with a nice Jewish girl. So you never get away from it. I feel like one of your great talents is is that tenacity, that pushing to, to get something that often winds up being these really special moments, like Woody Allen with his parents. Do you think of yourself that way? Um, well, I don't think I'm pushy. I mean, other people might. <laughs> um, no, I just want to do right by the person. I just want to really tell a good film. And, and I think once you start to do these kind of films, you really want to get deep and deep into their souls and really figure out who they are as people. And that's what I try to do. We'll be back in a minute with more from Barbara Koppel talking about her new film, Miss Sharon Jones. Pure Nonfiction takes a break from new episodes until September, but you can still listen to all 17 episodes of season one. Last month, Tom spoke to cellist Yo-Yo Ma about the film, The Music of Strangers, and performing without fear. And I can report to you that the difference between playing a performance when you're afraid and you kind of make it and, you know, even if everything's right, the feeling of total exhaustion at the end versus playing it full out, mm. totally loving it, giving everything, you know, messing up things, whatever, mm -hmm. and but you're in the pocket, you're in the spirit, you've de delivered your all, you have plenty of energy left at the end. To hear more from Yo-Yo Ma, go to episode 11. Explore other Pure Nonfiction interviews for free on iTunes or at purenonfiction.net. In Barbara Koppel's new film, Miss Sharon Jones, she profiles the soul singer who performs with the Dap Kings. Koppel films a dramatic year in Sharon Jones's life as she's diagnosed with cancer and the future of her band is left uncertain. Here's a clip where the Dap King songwriter Bosco Mann describes the pressures. I just refinanced my house and like the first couple of banks rejected me and apparently they read about Sharon being sick and like rejected the loan because they were like, well, how are you going to make money if she's sick? And I was like, Jesus Christ. 
I asked Barbara to describe Sharon Jones for newcomers to her music. Uh, Sharon Jones is a singer who's been singing for all her life. She used to sing gospel singing in church when she was young. She grew up in Augusta and then moved to New York when she was young, and she'd go back and forth between the two places with her mom. And she then also was um, a guard at Rikers Island and used to sing to the inmates. (laughs) And she also was a security guard at Wells Fargo. She was told, and she wanted to make a career in soul singing. That was so important to her. But she was told that she was too old, too short, too fat, and too black to be able to do it. And she admits she's four, one and a half, and I feel like a giant next to her. And she just has the most amazing, incredible voice that one could ever imagine. And she went and the Dap Kings were looking for backup singers. And she went and she performed in front of them and they said, we would love you to work with us. And that started off her career. And... Another musician, Alex Cavden, then became her manager. And suddenly a whole world opened up to her of having somebody look after her career and also being able to sing. Now, if you ever see an album cover of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, you you could mistake it for something that came out 40 years ago because they have a real uh, retro style to the way they present themselves and they have a real devotion to uh, that strain of soul music that, you know, was probably more prominent in the 1960s and 70s. Yes, that's absolutely true. Plus, Sharon's really funny. She has this great sense of humor. She works with a lot of white Jewish kids. And she said to um, them once, she said, how how in the world can these white Jewish kids understand what soul is all about? And of course they do. And (laughs) they're terrific. Um, Now, how did you get connected to Sharon Jones? Uh, VH1 called me up, and uh, Steve Mintz and Brad Abramson, who I'd worked with on a film called Woodstock Now and Then, uh, about the 40th anniversary of Woodstock, and I just had a ball working with with that material, and also, too, with Brad and Steve, Uh, and they called me up and asked me how I would like to do a film on Sharon Jones. Alex Cavden had gone to them and said, I think we should do a film on Sharon Jones. And they said, we have just the person for you. And luckily, that was me. Did you know a lot of Sharon Jones's music before then? I didn't. I knew 100 Days, 100 Nights, but not very much. Now I do. (laughs) Now I sit and I sing (laughs) to myself as the film shows. But the very first day of filming her, Sharon got cancer, um, type 2 pancreatic cancer. So this idea was hatched before anyone knew that Sharon Jones had cancer? No. No. They knew that she had cancer. She had already had her Whipple operation, and she was about to go and start chemo. So, so the film was conceived as, like, let's capture this period of time. Or let's capture this woman who is a major singer and tell her story. 
that was more what it was. So your very first day of filming is uh, is an early scene in in the film. Yeah, my first very first day of filming is um, when Sharon Jones is having her dreads cut off and also her head shaved. And preparing for chemo. Preparing for chemo and crying. And it's part of, I guess, the whole transformation of what one goes through when they're a cancer patient, step one. And it just put such a bond between us. I mean, I had never even met her, and there I was filming probably the hardest and the most intimate moment in her life. And then that same day, we went to an organization that gives you wigs, and I got to see her her humor and her trying on the wigs and really not liking any of them and cracking jokes about them. So I knew that she was going to be this phenomenal character. Can you describe for me what your crew is like? My crew on films are different. We keep it very small. It's usually a camera person, now a sound person, since I'm not doing sound. And... um, a lot of the times our producer, um, Dave Cassidy, comes and we have a PA if we have to drive around a lot and me. And I'd love for you to describe what the kind, the ballet of, of filming observationally is when you're in a small space like this hair salon where – Sharon Jones is getting her her hair cut. It's not that big a space. And here you've got you, a camera person, a sound person. Right. Um, And also, too, because I did sound for so long, I'm wearing a Comtex. So I'm seeing and hearing everything that the sound person is. So I know exactly what's happening all the time. And I don't always do observational. I mean, I interview or sure. if I see something happening, I pull the camera person, you know, to be able to film it. But we're very quiet. Uh, we really like for the characters who we're filming to forget that we're there. And many of them are in crisis or going through something. So we're totally not important. What's important is what's happening with them. And what do you look for in a camera person? Uh, I look for, I've been using a camera person named Gary Griffith, who's just an absolutely wonderful storyteller. He's a director in his own right. He did a fiction film called Lissapod, which is, um, he filmed in Prague, and it was all about the Velvet Revolution. It was a real story of a friend of his, and I went and helped him when he was doing it. Uh, But choosing a camera person, if you're going to do so much work and be there and really capture those moments, you want to be able to know that that camera person is feeling them and seeing them and hearing them. And that's very, very important to me. I also really want a good sound person, and I always have camera and sound. Now, is there any scene in Miss Sharon Jones that you think is representative of what Gary does, what his artistry is? 
Oh, absolutely. I think there is. The church scene. Uh, Sharon Jones is going back to her church. She hasn't been there for quite a long time. She's been having chemo, and she's sort of hobbling up the steps and holding on and very short of breath, and she walks in, and there's music everywhere. And somebody hands her a mic, and she sings, you know, His Eyes on the Sparrow, which is a beautiful Southern song, and she sings it with everything that she has. And then she hands the mic off to somebody, and suddenly the music takes her, and she dances and moves. And then at the end of that, she walks, and she sits down in the pew, and you can hear her breathing because she's so short of breath. And Gary captured that in one take. There were no cuts. We cut a little in the edit room just to make the song a little shorter, mm. a cutaway, but he didn't stop the camera through that entire piece. Mm. Mm. That's what a fantastic DP is. The, the, the Dap Kings and Sharon Jones are very much like a family. And in this period of time, Sharon Jones is kind of the breadwinner of this family. I mean, without Sharon Jones as their headliner... They can't tour. Uh, they, you know, are held back from making a record and feel that uncertainty in your film. You know, I, I wonder if you can kind of elaborate on what that experience was like inside that group. Well, inside that group, they always consider Sharon Jones as a sister. And they're all very in touch with her during this whole process. They went out and they worked with other bands to make a living. Um, they used to be the backup band for Amy Winehouse right. for quite a while. Uh, but yes, all of that is true. And, and they kept trying to coach her to take on music. But during the seven months that you know she was ill, she didn't do any music whatsoever. But she came back, and her first um, musical venture was uh, at the Beacon Theater, and it was sold out. And she was really, really scared about what was going to happen and who she was going to be. And she didn't want to just sit in her chair. She wanted to, you know, throw her shoes off, and she wanted to dance because they called her the female. James Brown, and we even caught her behind stage holding her cup and shaking right before she went on. And then as she went on through the curtain, and they yelled, Binky yelled, Miss She went through like a prize fighter and went on stage and just killed it. But when they could feel she was out of breath, they would do riffs, and they would slow everything down. And everybody has such a deep respect for each other. And I think more than anything else, what they wanted was for her to heal and for her to be good, feel good about herself. And she's now on tour opening for Hall & Oates. What was the experience like showing them the film for the first time? 
Well, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't seen it before. They had not seen like any rough cuts or anything before? No, nothing. Um, <laughs> the, their manager, Alex and Austin, who's the assistant manager, came in once and we brought them into the editing room and showed them two or three scenes. And then, you know, I'm always saying, okay, well, do you want to see more? And they said, no, 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 we have to go. So, okay. So they had never seen any of it. And they all sat there at Toronto Film Festival seeing it for the very first time. And they were laughing and they were crying and they were hooting and embarrassed. And (laughs) they just went through all of the emotions. And Sharon was really glad that it was made because she wanted her fans to know what she had been going through. And she felt that it really was something that was very real because you sort of saw her as the genuine article. Over the years, I've had a lot of experiences getting to show your films at our weekly series, Stranger Than Fiction. We've shown Harlan County and American Dream and Shut Up and Sing and, and other films. And every time I show one of your older films, you always come and, and sit and watch the whole thing, which lots of filmmakers won't do with an older film. And I want to ask you why you do that. I love to sit in the audience and watch the film. Uh, one, it also reminds me of all the different moments that I had while making it. and But more than anything is that being with an audience and watching where they laugh and watching, you know, their moods or they go, <gasps> or whatever they do, it just fortifies me. It reinforces why I'm doing these films and it's extremely meaningful to me. So I don't want to miss anything. I want to be in there and feel that human experience of people watching the film. I want to thank Barbara Koppel for joining us. Look out for Miss Sharon Jones coming to a theater near you this summer. If it doesn't come to a theater near you, you should move. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. This is a wrap on season one of Pure Nonfiction. If you like what you've been hearing, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes. And please spread the word to your friends. We'll be back in September. Meanwhile, you can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.